Hello, and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. With the new year and new decade quickly approaching, I have something very different to start the show with today. I was recently contacted by a listener from Guam with a small plea to help her with something. Problem is, it's a paranormal something. And while I'm endlessly fascinated by the paranormal, I am by no means an expert. Remind me to tell you about the time a friend of mine signed me up to audition for a ghost hunting show. It was a hilarious disaster. Anyway, I told her that while my knowledge is very limited, I, with her permission of course, could bring her story to my audience. I'm hoping one of you could possibly be of assistance. She's desperate for help and told me she is living in terror that this thing is going to harm her or her child. So, before we get into the fictional scares, I would like to read what she wrote to me with hope one of you can help her with this real-life nightmare. Okay, so here's my story. Back when I was in the fifth grade, 12 years old, I used to go to the school in the Philippines. There was a rumor that the school was built on top of a cemetery, and they never relocated the bodies. There was this house below the small hill that our school was built on. Supposedly, it was the caretaker's house who watched the graveyard before. He had passed away due to old age, and his wife committed suicide because she couldn't have kids. I was moving to Guam soon, so my friends and I decided to explore the house before I leave. We climbed down the small hill towards the old house. The house wasn't really that big, it looked more like a small cottage made with wooden planks and coated with white paint. The roof was made of tin, and it just laid on top of the structure. When we got to the door, my friends all tried to open the door with no luck. I was the last one to try. I grabbed the door and nearly got dragged inside the house as the door opened quickly. I turned to my friends, only to see them running up the hill screaming. I let go of the door and ran after them. I asked them why they just left me when I was able to open the door for us, and they told me that they saw a lady with long ginger-colored hair and a long white evening gown beckoning me to come inside the house. I never saw her then, but when I left the Philippines to go to Guam, I finally saw her. It was before my birthday. She looked exactly how my friends described her, but her throat was slit and her neck was overflowing with blood. Then she turned into a black cat. Since then, every week before my birthday, she always shows up. I wasn't sure what she wanted until I was 16. She told me all she wanted was to have a daughter of her own to raise, and she wanted me to fill that role. I didn't reply to her request. When I had my daughter two years ago, I knew something was occupying her because my daughter wouldn't be paying attention to me when I was talking to her. She would be looking behind me, and ever since I had her, that lady never shows herself to me anymore. But I think she's trying to mother my daughter. I have yet to find out since my daughter doesn't really talk in full sentences yet, but that's my story. If you have any information that could help her, contact me at scarytosleep at gmail.com and I will connect you with her. Also, she had originally messaged me through Facebook and I didn't see it for a while. I just want you all to know that I don't have my notifications turned on for Facebook Messenger. I've run into this problem a few times. If you message me there and I don't answer for a week, it's because I'm just not checking it. So just always, I recommend just emailing or going to the website and using the contact form. 
But yes, again, if anyone can help this listener, please email me or use the contact form on the website and I can get you together and or pass on a message for you. Thank you so much. Now, let's move on to the fictional stories of the week. This first one is called The Thing by R. Chetwind Hayes. The bar was not very full, the evening being but middle-aged. That is to say, it was too early for the after-theater crowd and too late for a quick one for the road school. This, in my humble opinion, is the time for civilized drinking. Not that I've ever minded drinking at an uncivilized time, but it's nice to be able to spread your elbows and bathe your tonsils with scotch in reasonable comfort. There are those people who go into a bar for social intercourse, at least so they say. But I, being above all else an honest man, must confess I go into a bar for only one reason. I like to drink. Now, let us get one thing straight. I'm not an educated drinker. Fancy names on dusty bottles don't mean a thing to me. As the man said when he was asked if he preferred beef to mutton, it's all meat. Old-fashioned whiskey was good enough for my father, and he died a drunkard's death at 82, which was 20 years longer than his teetotal brother lived, who was knocked down by a bus in the Fulham Road after speaking at a temperance dinner on how strong drink shortens life. There must be a moral there somewhere, but frankly, I've never quite seen what it is. Unless it be, stay quietly sozzled at home, then you won't be knocked down by a 175 bus. But all this is, by the way, digression is one of my many weaknesses, for I often find that the soup is much more tasty than the main dish, and perhaps when you have heard the rest of my story, you will agree with me. However, as I said, the room was not very full, so I went straight up to the bar and ordered six double whiskeys, and the smart young barman looked at me, for he could see I was by myself, so I took a deep breath and explained the facts of life to him. I could order one whiskey, take it over to that table, drink it, and come back for five refills. But that would be wearing on my legs, which, after the fourth glass, need as much rest as they can get, and a lot of work for you. He grinned and said he agreed, but I don't think he was happy. For one thing, I was not what you might call a snappy dresser, and they were used to dinner jackets and off-the-shoulder dresses, or at least a decent lounge suit. But corduroy trousers and a roller neck jersey is my stock and trade, for a rider isn't looked up to these days if he dresses like everyone else. And damn it all, my money is as smart as the next man's. I carried my drinks on a tray the barman gave me to a table a little way from the bar, and after emptying the first glass, I sat back and took in the scenery. The tables were little islands, most of them deserted, but here and there a few castaways sipped their nourishment and looked as miserable as most people do in bars. So, I turned my attention to the tall stools that lined the bar, and thought they looked like the things in circus rings for seals to perch on. On the one nearest to my table was a girl, and I wondered how I'd missed her, but thought perhaps she'd come in when I wasn't looking. But she was there now, and was presenting one of the most tasteful bare backs that I had ever seen. Now, 
all men have their various tastes when it comes to admiring feminine beauty. Some rave about legs, other breasts, although believe me, a lot of deception is practiced in that direction these days. But for myself, show me a flawless back and I raise my hat. Always supposing I wore one, which I don't. This girl knew what she'd got and made the most of it, for her dress was a mere tape that supported the legal amount of material at the front, and nothing at all above the waistline at the back. She must have felt my gaze, which isn't surprising, for she turned her head and I saw a pair of cornflower blue eyes, set in a pale, beautiful, if characterless face, surmounted by a pile of artistically dressed hair. Then she winked, and without so much as a by-your-leave came and sat at my table. I sighed deeply and drowned my second whiskey to wash away my disillusion. For surely the strangest part of man's makeup is that he will pawn his soul for what he thinks he cannot have, but will turn his head in disgust when he learns it is well within his means to buy it. She sank down in the chair opposite mine and said in a low, husky, carefully cultivated, seductive voice, Aren't you going to buy me a drink? I said, Why not? But you will have to fetch it yourself. I never stir before the sixth drink, and by then it's a risky business. She took my pound note, making a small grimace, and the small sherry must have been exorbitantly expensive, or she was very forgetful, for I never saw my change. When she came back and reseated herself, and the third whiskey was doing its bounded duty so that the sharp edges of the bar were becoming nicely rounded, and a faint mist was obscuring the far end of the room, for, if truth be told, and I can see no reason why it shouldn't, this was not the first bar I had visited that evening. She said... You're cute. You know that, don't you? You're cute. I nodded slowly, for I was in the mood to agree to anything. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Whenever I look into a mirror, I get a shock. She giggled and took a ladylike sip from her glass. I wondered if the people who owned this bar knew what she was up to, or if the smart young barman, who had a suspicion of a knowing smirk on his face, was receiving his cut. What's a nice-looking fellow like you doing on your own? Getting drunk, I said briefly. It's a hobby. Some people collect stamps, others milk bottle tops, but I get drunk. I do it very well. She giggled again, and there was something horrifying about the beautiful mask. She looked like an animated shop window dummy, or a body from which the soul had been sucked out. (laughs) You're funny. I like witty men. Say something else. I grinned and felt my face crinkle, like a deflated balloon pressed by a child's destructive fingers. A fool is funny because he dare not think. For thought is a pathway to truth, and beyond truth lies madness. She shrugged her shapely shoulders, and they gleamed in the bright light, like white clouds on a winter's day, and for some reason I felt sad. Which was strange, for usually I am a cheerful drinker. That's not funny. It's rather frightening. I say, you're not squiffy, are you? 
How I would have answered this insulting insinuation, I do not know, for let it be recorded, never in fifteen years of heavy drinking have I been drunk. Or as my uncle, the one knocked down by a bus in the Fulham Road, would have aptly expressed himself, been seen the worst for strong drink. For at that moment, there was a sudden influx of people who came into the room, chattering and babbling and... In less than no time the place was crowded, and I was troubled by the thought that I might not have time or opportunity to buy my second consignment. But there came in with this human flood, like a piece of driftwood cast ashore by the tide, a young man who, for some reason that I could not at the time understand, stood out from the crowd and claimed my complete attention. He was young, Younger than he should have been, for although there were lines about his eyes and mouth, and a certain tautness of his facial muscles that suggested maturity of the years, yet he wore an air of youthfulness that did not flatter him, for one was reminded of a fruit that had hung on a tree for a whole summer but was still unripe. A soft green skin, full of corruption, that will fall to the ground at the first breath of autumn, he clung to the bar like one who has walked through life looking for props, and his weak, handsome face turned slowly. The pale blue eyes were lifeless blue chips of broken glass, and his full lips were moist and sagged pathetically as though he were about to cry. His neat, dark suit was rumpled, and his long fingers toyed with the buttons. Then, like a startled bird, the right one flew up to the striped tie and jerked it from side to side. Then abruptly, he turned his back, and suddenly I was aware that he was not alone. He who drains the wine jug to its bitter dregs sees strange visions, at least so it is said. But speaking for myself, although I've seen the world through many an empty bottle, I've yet to meet a pink elephant. But, of course, I am still comparatively young, and all things come to him that waits. But I knew, and don't ask me how or why, that what stood behind the young man did not come out of a bottle. But it wasn't the kind of thing you usually met in a bar, either. I'll tell you something else. I was pretty certain that I was the only person who saw it, because no one else paid it the least attention, and they would have if... <sighs> Let me describe the thing. Because that is what it was. A thing. Imagine something that has the shape of a man. A tall man, at least six foot two, dressed in a long black robe that encased the entire figure from neck to feet. Only the feet weren't too substantial. I could not be sure they were actually there. Then, imagine a dead white face. A face made of white wax. Then... Give the face a pair of black, gleaming eyes. Eyes filled with a terrible hunger that a thousand years of sated lusts will not satisfy. Then crown the face with a mop of coarse hair and watch a pair of thin lips as they move silent obscenities or whisper unfulfilled longings into the victim's ear. And you have a fiend that is begging someone to share its hell. "'What's the matter, honey?' the girl spoke, 
and her pale beauty seemed to bear a faint resemblance to that dreadful face. You look as though you've seen a ghost. A man at the bar. My voice betrayed nothing, and I marveled that this was so. Do you see anything unusual about him? The young one, there. I pointed, and she turned with little interest, for I suppose I was already beginning to bore her, and a more promising client would soon draw her away. Then her face flushed for a moment, then turned paler than before. Her eyes glazed with a sudden fear, and one hand tightened its grip about the wine glass, so that I found myself watching the whitened knuckles. It's Rodney. She gasped the name in a strangled voice, and for an instant her beauty was wiped away, so that I saw her as she would be when time had done its work, had taken the sheen from the pale skin, and wrecked the firm muscles with cruel fingers. Then she jerked her head round, and I looked at a frightened child. The cultivated mask ripped aside, and she was as naked as a sinful man on Judgment Day. I said, Do you know him? A silly question, but I wasn't really interested in her problems because the young man was taking a drink. At least, I guessed he was. For although his back was towards me, the thing had moved to a position a few feet from our table. And for a while, I could not understand why its mouth was open and its throat muscles working. Then, I suddenly realized that it was enjoying whatever the man was drinking. I know that must sound crazy, but... May I never raise a glass again if it isn't true. The white face gleamed with the look of a dipso who was having his first drink for a long time. Then the man at the bar turned. A full glass was in his hand, so I guessed he'd ordered a refill. And he came towards our table, so that for a while they stood side by side. The thing. And him. Only I knew he did not know he was not alone. Then he suddenly saw my girlfriend. The thing's eyes lit up as well, and together they approached the table, an action that didn't make me feel happy, or, if I was to judge by her expression, the little lady either, for she looked as terrified as a rabbit at a stoat's convention. Don't leave me alone with him, she pleaded. He's poison. I said nothing as he came up to the table, and I could tell he'd seen a lot of tough American films because he just grabbed a chair and sat down. The thing stood behind him, its eyes fixed on the girl, while its lips kept moving, and I found myself trying to guess what it was saying. The man ignored me, a fact that he would have regretted if I hadn't been so concerned with what he had brought with him, and when he spoke to the girl it was with a slight cockney accent that is so popular with pop singers. So I found you. Up to your old tricks again, looking for suckers, and I see you found one. He looked at me, but much more important, the thing did so as well, and I saw a gleam of speculative interest in its dreadful eyes, so that terror made me empty the sixth glass and make a beeline for the bar. The young man laughed, a high-pitched whining sound, but I did not care. So long as the thing stayed where it was, he could laugh his head off. But I could not leave the bar. I had to stay and watch this macabre drama. And though I would not face the truth, the tall black figure held a repellent fascination for me. I felt an urge to touch it, to hear it speak, 
even as a child might want to finger fire. When I looked back, the thing had changed its position and stood behind my vacated chair, where it was watching the girl and the man, and it seemed that it was taking part in the conversation, for the mouth was opening and closing, so that I had the impression that it was shouting instructions. More people came in and others left, all of them seeking the stimuli of alcohol, for the going is tough along the narrow pathway to the grave, or maybe the seventh whiskey was turning sour on me. Perhaps my liver was at last giving up the fight, or more likely my brain was beginning to present its own film show, but I could distinctly see a row of tables standing in a neat row against the far wall, and seated round them was a number of figures dressed all in black and wearing white masks. They sat perfectly still. Their heads were turned inwards and I could see the sexless profiles, and I felt an unexplainable dread that they might move, for I knew these were the eternal watchers, the dark ones, who know neither anger nor pity. The girl looked back over one white shoulder, and her blue eyes raked my face with burning intensity, a mute appeal for help as though I were a lifeboat in a boiling sea, and she a lone swimmer at the end of her strength. There was a scraping of a chair, and the young man sprang to his feet. The thing moved back, its eyes blazing with an unholy joy. The girl rose quickly and ran towards me, and the drinkers drew back in alarm so that I stood alone with the girl running her last few steps. Only the watchers did not move. She clutched my arms and I saw the dark caverns of hell reflecting in her eyes and I wanted to tell her it would all pass, that suffering cannot last forever, not even in hell. But there was not time. The gun in the young man's hand spoke instead and the beautiful eyes blinked, then blazed forth their horror. The white shoulders quivered, the neck twisted and she slumped to the floor. When I looked up, the young man was staring in astonishment at the huddled figure that lay at my feet. But the thing was close behind him. Its right arm was raised to the level of his, and its hand rested on the hand that held the gun. Then, it drew back, and I saw a look of peace on its face. The peace of a sated drug addict. The peace that would come to a vampire who had drunk his fill. The young man shook his head several times. Then, slowly, like a tired child stifling a yawn, he put the nozzle of the revolver into his mouth and pulled the trigger. The room was a bedlam of screaming women and swearing men. They rushed back and fro like ants when a pickaxe has been driven into their hill. I sank into a chair and listened to the waterfall that crashed about my ears and pondered on the suddenly revealed truth that man's lusts must go on multiplying so that eventually, surely, there must be total darkness or a wiping out, a new beginning. At last, I rose and made my way towards the door towards those black figures who were now more real than before. And there suddenly came into my vision a little man with a pale, wrinkled face and the knowledge of forbidden lore in his eyes. 
He beckoned with a long, trembling finger, and I bent down so that his lips could approach my ear. His voice was old, so very old, and he spoke in a low, husky whisper. Don't look behind, but you're being followed. With a single movement, the watchers turned their heads, and the white masks were staring at me. The eyes, black pools of darkness. And I knew I would never walk or drink alone again. Together, we left the room. Our last story of the night is The Bats by David Grant. The Windrops had a big garden behind their house, and at the end of it was a wooden hut. Originally, it had been used for storing garden implements and any junk that looked as if it might be useful someday. But now, it was given over solely to the use of their eight-year-old son, Mervyn. The Windrop's intention was twofold. Mervyn could have a place of his own in which he could do what he liked and make as much of a mess as he liked, learn to be independent and do things for himself. And also, the hut would be a place where his parents could leave him if they wanted to go out without upsetting him. If they wished to go to a theater or a dance or for a drink with friends, they could do so, because with luck, he would be so absorbed in whatever he was doing that he would not care in the least if they were away as long as they liked. Mervyn's main preoccupation seemed to be collecting and looking after animals. He was genuinely interested, and with the information he could glean from books and his father's help, which, however, he could enlist only after a great deal of persuasion, he was successful in raising broods of all sorts of small creatures, from caterpillars to rabbits. Long hours would be spent by the boy peering intently down at the movements of the various animals as he studied their habits, their often brief, intense lives, and their almost casual deaths. The trouble with the hut, and Mervyn's exile there, was it was an easy way out for his parents. He was becoming independent too quickly, and his affection rapidly being transferred from his parents to the animals he nurtured at the bottom of the garden. If the Windrups had any inkling of this, they were too wrapped up in the good time they were having, and the luxury of having a child who was no trouble to them because he could be left to his own resources to worry over much. Mervyn was not conscious of anything wrong, but it might have been broken to him gently, and no real harm done had it not been for an accident that revealed to him, for the first time, the extent of his abandonment. The usual procedure, when Mervyn first took over the hut, was that his parents would appear at the door and diffidently tell him that they were going out. After a while, this lapsed, and they would arrive at the hut, dressed, ready to go, and merely say, Well, we're off out, Mervyn, and leave it at that. Mervyn was usually so absorbed in his collection or in something that he was making that he did little more than grunt. Seeing this almost total lack of concern, the Windrips went a stage further and stopped coming down to the hut at all. Sometimes they told him when he was up at the house for a meal, but often they said nothing and just went, leaving him to fend for himself. 
One evening, they went out early without saying anything, while Mervyn was down at the hut, busily converting an orange box into a cage for a grass snake he had found. Soon, the light began to go, and he switched on the electric light in the hut with the same preoccupied air, which seemed to characterize everything he did now, that he was left to his own resources. The bulb was dim, and he was bending low over the box in his own light, chipping wood away with a chisel, which he handled somewhat uncertainly. Suddenly, the chisel slipped. There was a brief moment of disbelief, and there was blood welling from his left hand and a great pain shooting up his arm. The chisel clattered to the floor, and Mervyn crashed out of the hut into the gloom, screaming with shock and terror. He blundered through the garden towards the house, stumbling as he went, his eyes wet with tears and his arm hanging limp by his side and dripping blood. He rushed up to the house and burst in. The house was in darkness. Mummy! Daddy! I'm hurt! He screamed, but there was no reply. He paused and sucked in breath, his sobs almost silenced by disbelief that his parents should not be there to help him. He called for them again, but there was nothing. He rushed through the house, trying every room, calling for them as he went. Finally, he burst into his bedroom and sank down on the bed, his body shuddering with sobs. His right hand, the good one, plucked at the coverlet, and then the pluck became a grip as something in the boy asserted himself. The tears stopped flowing. Although he still sucked in great gulps of air, his grip on the coverlet strengthened until the knuckles showed white as he strove to control himself. His teeth clenched as he fought back the pain and the shock, and he found the courage to look at his shattered hand. Somehow he had missed the artery, but there was still a lot of blood flowing from the wound, and the pain throbbed through the whole arm. Mervyn stared down at it, and then the months of independence came to the surface, and he walked steadily from the room, holding his hand well away from him, and went into the bathroom. There, he turned on the cold tap in the basin and stuck his hand under it. As the water struck the wound, he nearly swooned from the pain, but his basic hardness sustained him, and he left the hand there while the blood swirled around the basin, mingling with the water, and then dropped out of his life. Next, he took a bottle of iodine from the cupboard above the basin and removed the cork with his teeth. Unsteadily, he poured the iodine on the wound and yelled in agony. Once again, he clenched his teeth and overcame the pain as he knew he must. His face was gray, but his eyes were hard and staring as he found a bandage and started clumsily to bind his hand as he had seen his mother do it. But now, his mother was not there to help. This was something he would remember. They had not been there to help. Somehow, he managed to wind the bandage round his hand and fix a simple kind of knot. Blood was still seeping through, mingling with the iodine, but he was past caring. Now that he got this far, he was weak from loss of blood and the shock, not only of the accident itself, but of finding that he had to care for himself when it was the duty of others to be there to aid him. He staggered back to his room and slumped over the bed, where he lost consciousness. The Windrops had had a very pleasant evening and returned home late. As soon as they entered the house, they saw the first signs of what had happened. A small table in the hall had been knocked over, and the papers that had been on it were flecked with blood. As they went into the other rooms, they saw that there were splashes of blood everywhere. 
They regarded the scene with horror and stood speechless before Mrs. Windrup recalled her duty and screamed, Mervyn! And raced up the stairs to where the trail seemed to lead. They passed the bathroom and saw the pools of blood on the floor. Then they burst into Mervyn's room, where he lay tossing feverishly on the bed. His face white and beaded with sweat, his injured hand hanging limply over the pillow, which was now deeply stained. They telephoned for the doctor, who in turn sent for an ambulance and listened in stony silence while they told him what they knew, which was, of course, very little. The contempt on his face was enough in itself to punish the Windrips, but they had no idea then of the punishment their son had in store for them. He did not lose his hand, although it was a very near thing, but he virtually lost the use of it and it hung claw-like by his side, incapable of doing much more than pulling and pushing things if they were not too heavy. His parents' remorse was genuine, and they did all they could to make up for that one dreadful night, but they discovered that all affection had died in their son, except for his animals and for the life he led in the hut. He was always polite to them, and at times almost affable, as if he were a friend of the family rather than their eight-year-old son. He accepted their new interest in him with a vague condescension that humiliated them. He now smiled little, apart from at his pets, and when he looked at the creatures in their neat little cages in the hut, there was a soft, tender look in his expression which contrasted with the hate which showed when he glanced at his parents. A hate which vanished if they were actually looking at him, to be replaced by something that distressed them equally, indifference. His father took to coming down to the hut to see what he was doing, to take an interest in his hobbies in an effort to win back the boy's affection, but each time he found the same indifference to anything he might say or do, and a total absorption in the study of his pets. As far as Mervyn was concerned, his father might not have existed as he stood next to him in the confined space of the hut, and he never spoke unless it was some brief answer to the questions his father asked to show his interest. Windrip's effort was too late and failed miserably. While distressed by the alienation of his son's affection, he was also piqued that more interest should be shown in the animals and that he should be virtually ignored. It's those animals, he said to his wife. We shall have to get rid of them. We can't hope to gain Mervyn's confidence or even his attention while they're still there. They have to go. We couldn't do that, replied Mrs. Windrup. They're his whole life now. If we took them away, he'd have nothing left. What an attitude, snorted her husband in disgust. Of course he'd have something left. Us. I don't know, said his wife doubtfully. But I don't think the answer is to get rid of the animals. It was all right for her, Windrup decided. She hadn't been snubbed like he had. Why don't you go down and have a look at them? He asked. You try and talk to him down there. It's impossible. Mrs. Windrup went down to the hut. Mervyn was in there, stroking his grass snake. His mother pulled back at the door when she saw it, but by the look of contempt in his eyes, she realized that it was harmless. Hello, she said diffidently. Mervyn replaced the grass snake in its box and turned to a tortoise. His mother was left looking at his back. 
Her lips tightened with anger, but she tried to make the best of it. She looked round at the boxes and cages, at the hamsters, the rabbits, the hedgehog, the caterpillars that looked like miniature flu brushes, the raven, and the one-eared cat that sat nonchalantly in the corner, washing itself. My, what a lot of pets you have now, she said, forcing enthusiasm into her voice. Mervyn's mouth curled slightly at the edges. He had not reasoned it out at all, but deep down, he knew that she was the real villain, as far as his accident was concerned. He could forgive his father not being there, but his mother? Never. She did not see the loathing in his eyes, as she turned and pointed into the far corner of the hut. What have you got there? She asked. Mervyn had hung sacks so the whole corner was shut off from the joists to the floor, thus making a small, dark enclosure with the top and bottom open. Mervyn ignored his mother's question. She tried again. What have you got over there? Bats, replied Mervyn quietly. Bats? Bats. Uh, oh, I see, she said, backing towards the door. I didn't think you could keep bats. I can, said Mervyn, following her with his eyes. She was trying to show that she was not frightened, but she was. There was something that repelled her about bats. She thought of the small mouse-like bodies, the staring blind eyes, the shrill squeals and the darting flight. Some of them drank blood. The other pets she could stand, although some of them made her shudder slightly when she first saw them curled up in their cages or inching from plant to plant. But the thought of bats was too much. I'm going to get dinner ready, she said abruptly, and left. Mervyn smiled as she went. He crossed to the corner and pulled one of the sacks aside. There they were. Hanging from the joists was a row of bats. They looked bigger than the usual sort found in Britain, but perhaps that was the fault of the light which threw long shadows. The boy looked up at them with affection and then casually ran a hand across his throat. He could not feel them, but he knew that there were two tiny wounds there. Wounds he was pleased to have. After all, his friends must feed. Back in the house, Mrs. Rindrup was in the kitchen, talking to her husband. He's got bats down there now. Bats? I didn't think you could keep them. Neither did I, but he says he can. Mervyn was right. He could. The bats were flourishing. But he was suffering for it. After his accident, he had regained his previous color and health with encouraging rapidity. But now, he had become pale and listless again, as he had been immediately after it. It was as if his blood were being drained slowly from him. In time, the Windrips noticed it, and in their fumbling way tried to say something to him. Get him to eat more, to take more rest. But the look in his eye, the silent scorn was too much for them, and they stood mutely by as he began to waste away. As far as they were concerned, it was a phase, following the accident and would probably right itself in time. Then Mrs. Windrup saw the marks on Mervyn's throat. She was in the kitchen one day shucking some peas when he looked even paler than usual and his eyes were feverish. He stopped by the sink and took a piece of soap to wash his hands. 
It was then that his mother noticed the two little pinpricks on his throat. They looked as if they had just been made. She came close to him and pushed his head back, peering at the marks. How did you do that? she asked. Mervyn twisted his head away from her irritably and flushed beneath his pallor. Nothing, he mumbled, and looked at her steadily. She could not hold his gaze and she knew it. He left the room, and she stood there, thinking about the marks. He must have been bitten by some insect in the garden. He must have been bitten. The bats. She suddenly thought of the bats hanging silently in the corner of the hut, and she gasped as the fantastic idea blossomed in her mind. She went quickly to her husband and told him. You must ask Mervyn, she concluded. You must be firm and get him to tell you about it. He won't say anything whatever I ask him. Anyway, the whole idea is ludicrous. But, ludicrous or not, Windrup was determined to find out about the marks from his son, not so much to ascertain how he got them, but to prove to himself and the boy that he still had some authority over him. That evening, he went to Mervyn's bedroom and found him lying in bed, resting. He was shocked at his appearance. His body seemed to be wasting slowly away, and the pallor of his face was almost luminous in the dimly lit room. Mervyn, let me have a look at your throat, please. Mervyn did not move. Mervyn, the marks on your throat. Windrup approached the bed and looked down at his son, who stared up at him without moving and without saying a word. He tried to turn away as his father sat on the edge of the bed, but Windrup got a hold of him and pushed his head back so he could see the pricks in the light of the bedside lamp. Where did you get those? Silence. All right, said Windrup, making a decision. You aren't going to tell me anything. I'll tell you a thing or two. Not only are those bats going, but all the other animals as well. And furthermore, I shall take great pleasure in demolishing that hut with my own two hands. No! The cry came from deep within the boy, and his eyes seemed to start from his head. He raised himself up on his elbows, and Windrup recoiled from the hatred that radiated from his son. He rose quickly from the bed, and then asserted himself. Yes, he said firmly, and left the room. Mervyn slumped back onto the bed, and his eyes seemed to sink back into his head as he fought to recover from the shattering blow. What would he do when the hut went? Where would the bats be able to go? It was difficult enough as it was, trying to make sure they were fed, difficult to supply enough blood. That night, the Windrips went to bed happier than they had been for some time. A decision had been made, and once it was carried out, they could get on with the job of reclaiming their son without malign outside influences making it impossible. They talked for a while, and then both went comfortably to sleep. In his room, Mervyn waited patiently. When he judged it was right, he went quietly to the door of his parents' room and tapped. There was no reply, so he softly opened it and looked in. Both asleep, he closed the door and hurried downstairs, out into the garden and down to the hut. As he neared it, he could hear the shrill cries of the bats as they waited for him. He opened the door of the hut 
and they flapped out into the night, circling him, squeaking urgently as they hovered close, almost caressingly. Mervyn started to walk back towards the house, and the bats followed, swooping and wheeling away at times, but always returning. When he got to the house, he paused. Quiet now, bats, he said gently, and the cries ceased abruptly. Then, the strange procession entered the house. The small, pale-faced boy in pajamas, and the now silent swarm of fox-faced bats, flicking their way silently around the room as they went out into the hall and up the stairs. Mervyn edged his way along the passage until he came to his parents' room. He stopped to see if all his friends were with him, and they were. He grinned widely, and then opened the door of the bedroom, stepped in, and looked back at the silent, flapping mass of wings, fur, and teeth. Come along, bats, he said. Thanks for listening. I'm so behind on Patreon shoutouts. I have received so much support over the last few weeks. It brings so much joy to my heart. Now that the holidays are over and I won't be traveling all over the country, I will have much more time to spend creating bonus content for you all. So a huge thanks to Ashley Rose, Lexi Z, Casey Adams, Jen Hayes, Carrie, Anne McIver, Jeremy Crace, Crasse, Crace, Tanya, Nicole Wheatley, Nikkel Waddley, I'm really trying, I promise, Deborah Johnson, Leslie Johnson, Honey Badger, and April Powell. Thank you so, 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 so much. I'm sending you so much love and happiness and joy. I hope 2020 treats you all very well. Thank you to those of you who have used all of my sponsor promo codes throughout the year. You've truly changed my life along with my beautiful patrons. Seriously, using those promo codes is huge, for me anyway, and it really, really, really means a lot to me when you remember to use mine. Remember, you can send your stories to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. I hope to hear from all of you who wrote to me in 2019 saying you were inspired to start writing your own stories. I'll be looking out for those. Also, remember you can reach me there as well to help with the ghost problem from the beginning of the episode. You can follow the show on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. You can join the Facebook group and come hang out with me and fellow listeners. I think that's all. Now, go get some sleep, sweet dreams, and Happy New Year.